Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let's pray together. So Father, we come this morning, uh, each with our own uh, preconditioned ideas, notions of how you work and move and do your will in this world. And we want to just stop in this moment and say, uh, we submit uh, to your word. We want your word to lead us and guide us. And so where I have and where we have as a church these preconceived ideas and boxes of how you work and what you want to do uh, that are not according to your word, would you heal us? Would you open our eyes to see uh, the wonder and the beauty of what you're doing in and through your church in this world through the gifts? And so be present by your spirit, we, pr we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully the text this morning sounded familiar to you uh, because it's the exact same text we preached on last week. Uh, so if it didn't sound familiar, then you should go back and listen to the sermon last week because last week Daniel preached all about the unity that we enjoy since all our gifts proceed from one God, the same triune God. Last week we saw and we heard about the common mission our individual gifts are serving. Last week was all about the source and the goal of all spiritual gifts. Gifts have their beginning in God, their source in the one God. And they have their end or their goal in, in building up God's people and furthering God's mission. It's important that last week's sermon came first. And so, again, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, don't, don't listen to it now. You don't put headphones in now, uh, although you could, I guess. Uh, but I encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, this afternoon. Today, then, the emphasis is not on unity, but the diversity that exists within the unity of the church. Today is about God's very good idea. God's very good idea to use a variety of gifts, a variety of gifts, different gifts, to achieve the one end of building up the church and furthering Jesus' mission. Our text this week is a spiritual gift list. There are others in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, in Ephesians, in Romans, but, but this gift list here in 1 Corinthians 12 is the most expansive, most detailed. These aren't exhaustive lists, we believe, containing all the gifts, but they are example lists. And of the nine gifts listed in verses 4 to 11 this morning, we're going to look at six of them. Six of them. We're going to talk about tongues and the interpretation of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. 
which expands on that topic more sort of broadly. So if you came this morning like eager to learn about tongues, just hold on. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about prophecy and the role of prophecy. A really important question, what is prophecy today? How does it differ from Old Testament prophecy? What does this mean for how we read our Bibles? Those really important questions we're going to ask in two weeks' time as we just spend a whole sermon on prophecy itself. This morning is, is six of the nine. Tongues, prophecy, they're, they're again going to the future. If you're mad at me, that's okay. Uh, but think of it as building suspense, right? We're, we're eagerly building suspense for these tongues, interpretation of tongues and, and, and prophecy. We're going to give a basic overview of these six gifts. And because we can only go so deep in the time that we have this morning, immediately following our gathering, we're going to have a Q&A time or Q&R time, as the kids call it this, these days, uh, a Q&A time uh, where you can ask questions about each of these six gifts. So I'm going to go about this deep on each of the six gifts this morning. And if you want to go like this deep, save that question uh, for the Q&A time. There's a number up on the screen. Write that down. I feel very proud of this. This is technologically savvy for me. Uh, you can text questions to the number on the screen. Uh, I'll be looking at that after the gathering and answering those then. So if you have questions... We'll leave that up there for a bit, text that number, uh, we'll go deeper during the Q&A time following the gathering, okay? Here's how we're going to work through our text this morning. One caution, one caution, six gifts. One caution, six gifts. Here it is. If you need that number, we can put it back on the screen for a bit. But the caution is this, ready? Beware of neat categories. When it comes to spiritual gifts, here's a caution, beware of neat and tidy categories. We live in an age of self-discovery, right? That's not a bad thing. We quite rightly want to know ourselves, know how we function, know what makes us tick. It's why we do things like personality tests. It's why things like the Enneagram are so popular. But sometimes, our desire to know ourselves according to neat categories, to be able to say things like, I'm an INFP, or uh, number three on the Enneagram. Sometimes, in our desire to know ourselves, we establish these artificial boundaries that when it comes to spiritual gifts, actually don't hold up. Actually suddenly get really fuzzy and not altogether that clear. Let me tell you what I mean. There will be some gifts this morning that we're looking at that are self-evident, that are obvious. For example, if I prayed for you for healing and you received physical healing, it seems self-evident to me that that was the gift of, or gifts of healing in operation at that moment. That a gift of healing had just been manifest for, again, the good of God's people and the furthering of his mission. That seems obvious to me. Other times, however, we don't know and can't know exactly what gift is being used. I think of Paul. Think of Paul in Acts 13, right? Paul, we read, has confronted there Elymas the magician. And Elymas is opposing the ministry of the gospel. And so it says in Acts 13, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, saw that Elymas was a son of the devil. That's the Bible, not me. Elymas was a son of the devil and immediately pronounces judgment on Elymas, and Elymas is blinded. So, in Acts 13, is this prophecy? Is this discernment of spirits? 
Is this the working of powers? Well, yes, yes, yes. What's important, however, is that Luke, the author of Acts, doesn't seem bothered or concerned with telling us which gift was functioning. So let me acknowledge a few things here. First, we are finite human beings. Finite human beings with limited knowledge and limited vision into the spiritual or unseen realm. We don't always know what's going on. That's true just on a basic level. We don't even know our hearts most of the time, the things that we desire and, and drive us. We don't always see, we, we can't always see into the unseen spiritual realm. And the second thing is this, gifts, gifts often bump up against one another. They mix with each other. And so, for example, for me, it's not always clear when I'm operating in a shepherding gift or a teaching gift. And what I'm saying here this morning is not that we should not try to understand these gifts or how they are practiced. We're going to do exactly that in just a minute. Rather, we need to be cautious of drawing clean lines about what gifts are operating at what times. Sometimes it is clear and obvious, and other times it's not. And you know what, Christ City? That's okay. That's okay. At times, our urge to label and categorize and sort our spiritual gifts really genuinely comes from a desire to serve Christ's body. It comes from a desire to be useful in the church, and that's good. Other times, our desire to, to know our spiritual gifts comes from a place of wanting to pump ourselves up. To be able to say to others, I have this spiritual gift and that spiritual gift. And suddenly, the gift becomes our identity, right? I become Jake the preacher. You become Sally the healer, right? It becomes our identity. And we become like the Corinthians, more excited about the gift than the giver of the gifts. We become more excited about what the gift says about me than why I've been given the gift in the first place, which is, again, to build up God's church and further God's mission. Further, because at times it's become more about us than God's people and God's mission, we get lost occasionally, don't we, in things like spiritual gift tests. I remember when I first became a Christian, what I was told to do early on was take a spiritual gift test then I would know definitively once and for all how I was gifted, how I was wired, and I simply just have to fill out this sort of questionnaire, and then poof, there's my answer. I thought, well, that's handy. I'm a neat, line, black and white kind of guy. It works. Those have their place, but they're not altogether that helpful at times. Sometimes we refrain from serving until we figured it out. So I'll serve, but after I figured things out on this, I want to get my ducks in a row. So I just want to say this. I want to quote author Sam Storms. He says this about spiritual gift tests and serving, and I think it's a timely word. He says, If we spend less time searching to identify our spiritual gifts and more time actually praying and giving and helping and teaching and serving and exhorting those around us, listen, Christ City, the likelihood greatly increases that we will walk headlong into our gifting without ever knowing what happened just happens. In this introspective culture, we're, we're anxious. What is my gift? Storm says, just start praying. Just start giving, helping, teaching, serving, exhorting. The likelihood greatly increases that we'll walk headlong into our gifting without ever knowing what happened. God will more likely meet us with his gifts in the midst of trying to help his children, which again is the point, 
than he ever would while we're taking a spiritual gifts analyst test. Caution. We won't always know what gift it's operating at what time, and that's okay. But let me further our caution around these neat categories. We should beware of classifying some of these spiritual gifts as miraculous and other gifts as sort of natural. So sometimes you say this gift is miraculous or supernatural, and this other gift, well, it's more of a natural gift, more of a natural inclination. Why do we do that? We live in this age of reason. We live after the Enlightenment, after the introduction and the emphasis on the scientific method and rationality and the material world, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But it means that we are more ready as a church, as Christians, to accept gifts listed in the New Testament like administration, right, or generosity, or service, or even words of wisdom, because in our world where we live today, we have pre-existing categories in our minds for those kinds of things. And so the gifts come and they slot in nicely right there. Perfect. I can do that without much, you know, sort of damage or, or, or stretching. Just fits. But notice, notice that even in the gift list, the Bible does not draw those lines. So in Romans 12, for instance, Paul moves between the supernatural gifts like prophecy and the so-called natural gifts like service without making any distinction. He doesn't say, hey, here's a supernatural gift. It's kind of weird. And here's this other kind of more normal stuff. He just says, here are all the gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of wisdom and knowledge, gifts that could be understood very naturally right before he speaks of working of miracles and various kinds of tongues. One group to him. In the list found in Ephesians 4, prophets. Prophets are listed alongside titles we're much more comfortable with, like shepherd and teacher. The call to every Christian in every generation is to avoid getting swept up in whatever is popular in this passing world and to accept as reality the world of the Bible. Our job is to conform our minds and our thinking according to Scripture. To be renewed in that way, Christian. To think like the Bible thinks. To inhabit the world that the Bible presents to us. Not impose our world onto the biblical one artificially. That's our call in this age. And the biblical world is a world where the miraculous and the supernatural can be found on almost every page. On every page. That's a world, isn't it, that's very different than our own. Thomas Jefferson, in his famous Jeffersonian Bible that you can find in the Smithsonian today, cut out, famously, all the bits of the Bible that were supernatural. So you can go to the Smithsonian today and see his Bible, and it's just these pages, just with missing huge gaps, huge holes. You can imagine, if you think about how much is supernatural in the Bible, how much would he have to cut out? Uh, the New Testament scholar, uh, Rudolf Boltman, he famously made it his mission to demythologize the New Testament, meaning he wouldn't cut up his Bible like Jefferson. No, he was more respectful than that. Rather, he would just chalk up the supernatural bits to the first century people being a bit primitive, right? Being, you know, stuck in their, their, their point in history. But as hard as Jefferson and Boltman and others have tried, there is no getting away from, there is no getting around the supernatural miraculous nature of the Christian faith. 
You can't this morning, and if you're new, this is a good introduction to Christianity, you can't this morning just have the morals of Christianity. You can't this morning just take the things that you're comfortable stomaching. You can't this morning just take what you like. It is all one supernatural package. The whole story of the Bible hinges on the supernatural, on the miraculous. God, we believe, spoke the world into existence. He took something that was not and said, be. God did that. God, we believe, sent plagues to save a nothing people from a world superpower. God, we believe, stopped the sun in the sky midday. God, we believe, became a man in Christ Jesus. Jesus, born of a virgin, we believe. God, we believe, in Christ Jesus, rose from the grave and is alive today. That you could dig for eternity and never find the bones or the remains of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, we believe, is alive, is resurrected. And God, we believe, is coming back again to judge the living and the dead to renew all creation. And God, we believe, as we wait for his return, our part in this story has given the church gifts by his Holy Spirit. This whole story is a story of one big miracle of God acting supernaturally and powerfully towards the world, which means it's just as miraculous and maybe even more when a brother or sister in Christ persists in the gift of serving in the midst of persecution, it's just as miraculous as it is when they edify the church through a word of prophecy. One caution, Christ City, beware of our neat and tidy modern categories. Six gifts, six gifts. We turn now to the gifts themselves. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8, we read this. Look with me. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. By way of reminder, where we've been so far, a spiritual gift is a gracious gift from God that comes through the Spirit to be used in service of God's people and God's mission in the world. That is what a spiritual gift is. And the first two gifts we find Paul listing here are the utterance or the word of wisdom and the utterance or the word of knowledge. Words of wisdom, words of knowledge. And if these gifts sound familiar to you, A plus, you've been paying attention in our First Corinthians series so far. Maybe you remember this, but Paul is deeply concerned about ideas of wisdom and knowledge in Corinth. Do you remember? Kind of. And if you don't remember, that's okay. In the Corinthian mind, Wisdom and knowledge was, was very easily expressed and seen in a few ways. Uh, one, you were rhetorically very gifted. You could stand in the middle of, of the city square and, and captivate an audience. You had clever and, and reasoned argumentation. Uh, you had a lot of people following you, a lot of fans, a lot of praise, right? This was all the beginning of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians thought of wisdom and knowledge in terms of uh, categories of rhetoric and, and sophisticated arguments. But Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians so far that the wisdom of God is seen not in these things, not in these worldly ways, but how? In Jesus Christ crucified. 
That's the wisdom of God, Paul says. That it's not about accumulating facts or about appearing great, but trusting in Jesus and entrusting in Jesus, getting the mind of Christ, Paul will say earlier in this very letter. The gifts then, words of wisdom and words of knowledge, and by the way, this is the only verse in the whole New Testament we have about these two gifts, and so bear with me. In the context of 1 Corinthians, is, is less to do with receiving a revelation from God about someone or what they should do, but in the context of this letter, refers more generally to, this is on the screen, the spirit-empowered ability to observe a situation and speak wisely and knowledgeably into it. It's the spirit-empowered ability to observe a situation and speak wisely and knowledgeably into it. And like, Jake, what does that look like? I think a great example of this gift in our midst is actually our biblical counseling ministry. It's a great example of this. I think Doug and Jody and their team do a great job of observing a situation and by the Spirit applying the mind of Christ wisely and knowledgeably to that situation. I think that this gift is, is an operating in, in that way. It's serving our church in, in that way, in our midst. So we continue. Verse 9, Paul says, to another faith by the same Spirit. This faith is not the saving faith that all Christians possess, faith in Jesus as king. No, no, Paul is still using the language of to another, right? Some get this, some get this, some get this. This is a faith gifted to some, not the faith required by all. This is special faith, as D.A. Carson puts it, which enables a believer, again, on the screen, here's our definition, which enables a believer to trust God to bring about certain things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in Scripture. The result of this gift of faith is the body is encouraged to keep going. The anxious are invited to rest. The fearful called to see God for who he is. The gift of faith, let me be clear, is not some kind of weird optimism that just refuses to be realistic about something denies reality. That's not the gift of faith. The gift of faith is not the rejection of all negative emotions, right? Well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't cry if you had the gift of faith. No, that's not how it works. The gift of faith is not about the power of positive speech or any such nonsense. The gift of faith is a gift of the Spirit that sees through the problem and believes God is going to move. And when I think of the gift of faith, I think of the ministry of George Mueller. Some of you know George Mueller's ministry, but he was a, a servant of Christ in, in 19th century Bristol, uh, England, right? Served over 10,000 orphans, they estimate, in that time. 10,000 orphans. He'd run these orphanages around the country serving uh, the, these, these kids who needed help. And throughout his ministry, Mueller was famous for, for never asking for money. He never asked for money, never asked for it. Instead, he believed had extraordinary faith that God would provide for all his needs and the needs of the orphans if they simply prayed. And so one famous story goes is that one morning they come downstairs and they sit down for breakfast. And he gathers the orphans around and, and they pray. They give thanks for breakfast. The problem is there's no breakfast on the table. The table is empty. But Mueller gathers them around and they give thanks for breakfast. Wouldn't you know, a few moments later, a knock on the door comes, Right? Bakery down the street has a bunch of bread for you. A few moments later, the knock on the door comes. 
a milk truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. We had to get rid of this milk. And suddenly breakfast is there. Gift of faith in operation. George Mueller, like some of you today, have the gift of faith. And Paul continues, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. We're going to spend some time here. Let me also say, if you have questions here on this gift, great Q&A question to ask about this, how we do it, what it means. There's a lot of questions around this, and so press in, uh, send those texts. I want us to notice first that each of the three times this gift is mentioned in chapter 12, so in, in verse 9, in verse 28, and verse 30, it's always in the plural. Gifts of healing. Gifts of healing, Paul says. Paul is saying that there are different gifts of healing, meaning the gift didn't just rest on some sanctioned healer or healing ministry, but was distributed throughout the church. Meaning, a person may be gifted to heal many people, but not all people. Meaning, another may be gifted to heal one particular person at one particular time of one particular disease. Which also means, if someone asks you to pray for their healing, it is not legitimate for you to say, sorry, you don't have the gift of healing. It doesn't count. It doesn't work the way. Paul said gifts of healing. Nor can we say that because the last time you prayed for someone and nothing happened, that means you shouldn't pray again. Because I don't have the gift of healing. It's not what Paul's saying. He says gifts of healing. It seems to me that God sovereignly uses people once or many times to bring about healing through prayer. Again, there's much that, more that could and should be said about this topic. But let me illustrate this point with an invitation. Some of you came this morning with physical ailments, like real physical pains. Not like you stubbed your toe this morning, but like real physical chronic pains. If we believe that the Bible teaches gifts of healing, then perhaps this morning, during our time of response, you'd like to go to the back. Go to the back where there are people ready to pray with you and for you for healing in Jesus' name. And maybe right now as I'm saying this, you're like, I don't want to do that. That seems uncomfortable. I thought this was more of a teaching church. <laughs> Further, because we believe as Christians that we don't, we're not like a, a soul and body sort of dichotomy, but that we're embodied souls, we're one, maybe the healing the Lord wants to do in your life this morning is the healing of guilt and shame as you walk out of unconfessing. Do not let this time pass, Christ City. Go and receive prayer at the back during our response time. I'll be back there. There'll be trusted brothers and sisters in Christ back there. Come and receive prayer for healing. Again, we can talk much more about this in the coming weeks and during our Q&A time. I just want to invite you to go and receive prayer this morning. Also, as Heath mentioned, or, or sorry, Will mentioned, this Wednesday night is our, our church-wide evening of prayer and worship. We're gathering downstairs this Wednesday to pray together. Come and receive prayer for healing. You do not have because you do not ask. Come. Gifts of healing, here's our definition, are spirit-empowered acts of God's sovereign will wherein a person receives healing from some sort of affliction. 
Spiritual gifts, remember, are charismata. They are grace gifts. So we do not declare healing. We do not presume on God's kindness. That's not this church. What we can declare, though, is that unlike any other list, gift, gift list, let me try it again. What we can declare, though, is that unlike any other gift listed in the Bible, one day each one of us will receive the gift of healing, right? Paul writes later in this very letter, at the return of Jesus, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So when we ask the Lord for gifts of healing, the answer in the big picture is never no. It's never no, but always yes or, or not now. Always yes or not now, wait. We continue. Paul writes, to another, this is our fifth gift if you're keeping track, to another, the working of miracles. The word miracles here to our earlier point might not be the most helpful word. The Bible does not break the world down in a dualistic way where there is the world outside of God and the natural world. We, we've talked about this. That's not a biblical worldview. The word translated here as miracles is perhaps better translated as powers. The working of powers. This gift is the working of powers. And so we're not confused. God is always working by power, through power in this world. Same word is used in Hebrews 1. When it says the Son is holding, sustaining all things together by the word of his power. Jesus lives. 2 Corinthians 13.4. It says, because God raised him by the power of God. In fact, you believe in Jesus this morning, if in fact you do, because you heard the gospel and it powerfully brought you to salvation. So before we look at some of these extraordinary workings of power amongst the church, we need to be reminded and worshipfully reminded that this power is not new or some sort of aberration or strange thing in God's character. Everything lives and moves and has its being by the power of God, by the say-so of God. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God. You are a Christian by the power of God. And now, in this gift, the working of powers, we find God himself sharing with us by his Holy Spirit the very same power, think about that, the very same power he has been and is still today exerting on his world. Wayne Grudem, he's a Bible teacher. He writes this. He defines workings of powers like this. A miracle or a working of power is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Well, Jake, what do these powerful works look like? Well, on one hand, it looks like God acting powerfully for his people. I think of when Jesus multiplied food for the crowds or when Jesus healed. All gifts of healing, by the way, are also workings of power, but not all workings of power are gifts of healing. I can remember uh, in the Chinese underground church in the 20th century, 
A man named Brother Yun wrote the book Heavenly Man. He spoke of a day that he was in prison. And miraculously, the gates of those prisons opened up. And miraculously, Brother Yun is led out of the prison and he is lifted over the walls of the gates. This, to me, fits in the workings of power's category. But the workings of power not only refer to God's less common activity on behalf of his people, but also, and we have to talk about this, but also refers to his activity as he opposes his enemies. This brings us to the final gift this morning. Paul writes, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. The ability to distinguish between spirits. This is the gift of spiritual discernment. It is, again, on the screen, the spirit-empowered gift to know whether something is from the Holy Spirit or demonic in origin. The ability to distinguish between spirits works hand-in-hand with the workings of power's gift. For one of the most common workings of power we find in the New Testament is the casting out of demons. It's exorcisms. These are parts of the Bible that uh, Boltman and Jefferson like to cut out or have us read differently. It's one of the most common workings of power in the New Testament. When Jesus and his followers spiritually discern that their opposition is not fleshly, not merely fleshly or other people in origin, but in fact demonic. So God works actively against the demonic, but God's power, again, is not only reserved for the demonic. People can bear the judgment of God's power as well. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they fall dead before Peter because they lie to the Holy Spirit. It's the workings of power. Again, Acts 13, we talked about Elimus already, but he was blinded because he opposed the ministry of the gospel. And the thing is, for most of the Christian church, for most of the Christian tradition, none of this surprised them. And yet it is shocking to us today. This surprises us today. We squirm, don't we? I squirm today. But Paul has already told us in this very letter of 1 Corinthians, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but of what? Does not consist in talk, but of power. Of power, Christ city. None of this should lead us to go around with our chest puffed out like we're superheroes or something special. Again, to do that would be to fall into the same trap as the Corinthians. To do that would be to violate the purpose of workings of power, which is to bear witness to God. But we need to know, what we have to see this morning, is that when it comes to workings of power, when it comes to workings of miracles, God's first choice, although he'll use them, God's first choice is not the proud. In the next letter, Paul writes to this church, he says this, but he said to me, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul's takeaway, should be our takeaway this morning, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I'm not going to cover them up, not going to lie about them, not going to pretend they don't exist. I'm going to boast about them. Why? For what purpose? To what end? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And, and maybe we don't see the power of Christ in our midst, Christ City, because we're too busy hiding our weaknesses. 
We're too busy trying to pretend that we're these self-sufficient, have-it-all-together people. And Paul says, don't do that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, God's kingdom is on the move. And he's not looking for the smartest or the bravest or the most talented. He's on the lookout for all those who will say yes to his obedient call, who are willing to step out in faith and use whatever gifts God has given them to further his kingdom. Think about this. Spiritual gifts make no sense if Jesus just expects us to sit here and wait for him to come back. They make no sense. But if Jesus expects us to be at work, to be laboring, to be using the gifts we've been given, the spiritual gifts make perfect sense. Indeed, it tells us of a gracious God who provides for us in the midst of our mission. Spiritual gifts only make sense if God has called us to be laborers, soldiers, soldiers that push back the darkness, soldiers that push back the very gates of hell. This past week, I was reminded reading a memoir of an older pastor, how in the 1970s, in the 70s, gospel work in French Canada, after being dormant for so long, began to explode, began to take off. It's a movement of the Spirit. And, and often when there's a movement of the Spirit like this, it is preceded by decades of faithful and usually discouraging work. And this was certainly true in Quebec. And one of those ministers who labored faithfully, who along with many other men and women, laid the kindling for the fire in the 70s, uh, was Tom and Marg Carson. Tom and Marg Carson. In six months before Tom passed away, almost as, as if he knew his time on this earth was coming to a close, Tom, reflecting on his life and how the Lord apportions gifts to each, Tom wrote these beautiful and simple words. He says this, if you get nothing else this morning, get this. He says, each of us Christians has something special to give. Each of us Christians has something special to give. He tells a story. He said, well, when I was in a Sunday school as a boy at Calvary Baptist Church, there was a saying hanging from one of the walls where everyone could see it. And should the Lord give us this building, I'm going to paint it on myself. Although if you saw the graphic downstairs I put on crooked, maybe I won't do that myself. But on the wall, so everyone could see it, it said this, I am but one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, God helping me, I will do. Christ City, our life is very brief. It's a moment. It's a mist. It's very brief. It's a momentary blink. It's very brief. And this is the charge that the Lord lays before each of us in this brief and momentary life. You are but one. But you are one. Not nothing, not zero. You are one. You, not having all the gifts, cannot do everything, but you can do something. Indeed, that's something you can do, you ought to do. You should do. 
And that thing God put you on this earth to do, that ought to do thing, God helping you, you will do. And God helping us, we will do. Let's pray, Christ City. So Father, we, we want to come this morning, and not just this morning, but every day of our lives, in that posture of obedience. Father, I think of those who have not yet discerned, who are still discerning what you're calling them to do. And I pray as they step out in service, as they try things and fail and succeed and, and figure out that you'd be gracious to them, but Lord, still there are others this morning who know what they ought to do, know the gifts you've given them, and have said no. And for those in our midst this morning, I pray for repentance. That we be a church that says yes. Yes to the gifts you've given us. Yes to the things we ought to do. Yes to the things you desire to help us do in our weakness, Lord. We're so glad you've called us. Not a perfect people, not even a pretty people but a willing people. Lord, use us. Use our gifts. Glorify yourself in our midst. And in this neighborhood, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.